Blessings to Jesus, dear friends. Thank you so much for joining us. Wherever you are, whatever country you're in, we have the same citizenship, irrespective of geographical location, ethnicity, etc. And one day, we'll not just see each other by Skype, we'll see each other face to face in the presence of Jesus if we keep our eyes on him. In the meantime, let's see if we can hear from him tonight through his word. We'll be looking tonight continuing our series, Messiah and Prophecy in the Psalms, and we'll be looking at Psalm 59 tonight, Psalm 59 and its background. What I'd also like to do tonight, if we have time, there seems to have been a considerable amount of interest on internet in the video I did with Dean Gibson, with Dean Gibson on the image of the beast. And uh, again, there seems to be interest in this thing. So if we have time, I'll expand a little bit, just a little bit further on that, but that'll be an addendum. It'll be an adjunct. It won't be um, the main Bible study or included in the main Bible study. Just if we have time, we'll do a bit. In the meantime, on Word for the Weekend this week on RTN, we're looking at the first mega church and the last, the first mega church and the last. But for tonight, look with me, please, to the 59th Psalm. For the choir said to Arteshet, a miktam of David, miktam de David. Remember, a miktam is something that could either be associated with atonement, at least in its imagery, or it could also be epigrammatic, ep like an epigram uh, in a poetic form. When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So we will be looking at that in Samuel, uh, the background of this particular psalm, but let's begin in verse one. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from the men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse thyself to help me and see. And thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. They return at evening. They howl like a dog. Notice that phrase. And they go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. And we have many Psalms where the tongue of the wicked is compared to a sword or called a sword. For they say, who hears? But thou, O Lord, dost laugh at them, and thou dost scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for thee, for God is my stronghold. My God, in his loving kindness, will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Interesting in verse 11, do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, 
Let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And they return at evening, there's that phrase again, they howl like a dog and go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of thy strength. Yet I shall joyfully sing of thy loving kindness in the morning. For thou hast been my stronghold and refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to thee. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. Like many of these psalms that are mikta'am, mikta'am psalms, the exploits and experiences of King David partially prefigure Jesus, the son of David. Jesus replays or recapitulates some of what happened to David. And Jesus was pursued from his birth. The wicked King Herod, wanting to keep power, tried to destroy Jesus right from the beginning, just like Saul, the wicked king, tried to kill David from the beginning. So right from the onset, you have a typology of David and Jesus, okay? Uh, the wicked king was trying to get both of them. Now, through most of his ministry in Nazareth, or in John chapter 10, or in John chapter 8, People have tried to kill Jesus before he was finally arrested in Gethsemane, when it was the purpose of the Father to give him over to atone for our sin. But the Father protected him many times from people who were trying to assassinate him, uh, just like God protected David many times from those trying to assassinate him. So again, the experiences of David partially prefigure those of the Messiah. The difference, of course, being David did not atone for our sin. The son of David did. It was posthumously that God blessed Yeshua, Jesus. But the prayer, deliver me, O God, from my enemies. O my God, set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. David is in a desperate situation. This is where Saul is really out to kill him and anyone who helps him. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression nor for my sin. Again, Jesus had no sin. They didn't want to kill him because of his sin. They wanted to kill him because of his truth. Goes on. The God of Israel awake to punish the nations. Again, why are the nations in an uproar? We normally associate, or many people normally associate, the crucifixion of Jesus with the Sanhedrin. That is only a partial truth. That is not how the New Testament looks upon what happened to Jesus. First of all, it was God himself who takes responsibility for the death of Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to slay him, okay? It was the will of the Lord to slay him. 
Secondly, Jesus said, I lay my life down. No one take it from me. No one take it from me. Nonetheless, we have parties who were culpable of killing him, even though it was by the foreplan of God. It was a sin. It was an outrage, but one that God allowed because he put his anger for our sin onto his son who had no sin. Hence, in Acts chapter 4, look at it, please. Peter gives a apologia during a time of persecution. And we'll begin in verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father, David, talking about King David, just as we are on the psalm, who say, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? Notice in Psalm 59, it's David, and he's talking about the Gentile nations. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now let's look at verse 27 very, very carefully of Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint. Remember, the anointed one means Messiah both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. The Father knew it would happen, but these people acted with culpability. Look how it begins. Herod and Pontius Pilate. Remember, Jesus had three trials, three, or three judicial proceedings. The religious one was before the Sanhedrin, before the high priest, Caiaphas, who we'll come back to shortly, and his father-in-law, Ananias, they were related by marriage, okay, Ananias and Caiaphas, okay, that was one, but they, they did not have authority to carry out capital execution. They had to get the Romans to do that. Then there was the Herodian trial, the Herodian trial. The Herodian trial we would call in modern legal terms a custody and jurisdiction hearing, a custody and jurisdiction hearing. Should he appear before Herod or should he be tried by Pilate? Being a Galilean, it would seem Herod but being in Jerusalem, it would seem Pilate, the different lines of authority by which the Romans divided up the land. And then it says, along with the Gentiles. So you have the capital trial of Pilate. Now it's always interesting to remember that as Jesus had three trials, Paul had three trials. Paul replays what happened to Jesus but that's not our subject tonight. Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. Notice it puts the Gentiles first. It puts Gentile government first, Rome. Rome had the legal authority to either execute Jesus or vindicate him since Pilate knew he was innocent. The blame first goes on the Roman authorities and the Herodians, okay? Then, along with the peoples. 
So the judgment would come on the Gentile nations and their governments, and also on unbelieving Israel. Now remember, in the line of faith, the line of faith were, before there were a lot of New Testament manuscripts all over, the line of faith was something called, we would call a credo, a creed. And there was the Nicene Creed, and then before that, the Apostles' Creed. But it came from something called the line of faith, the essential teachings of the apostles, okay? You would see something, it's not scripture, but well worth reading, called the didache. The didache explains the line of faith, a compendium of the essential fundamental teaching of the apostles concerning Jesus, the gospel, and Christianity. The didache, from the Greek word uh, didaskin, teaching, like we get the English word didactic, didactic, okay? Uh, well worth reading. So in, in this credo, Apostles' Creed, adopted in the Nicene Creed, how the early Christians saw it. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was begotten of a virgin, crucified, died, and was buried. He rose again from the third day, according to the scriptures, but he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That was the emphasis of the early church. This idea that Jews killed Jesus, the Jews killed Jesus, uh, was an invention of anti-Semitism in, in, in a Hellenized church. It was not the thinking of the early Christians. The early Christians understood Jesus died in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, Psalm 69, Psalm 22, and other passages to bring atonement. They understood it was the will of the Father to slay him. They understood no one took his life from him. He said he laid it down. Uh, he doesn't blame anybody for killing him except Satan. The only ones blamed for the death of Jesus are Satan and Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition. They're the only ones blamed. God assumes responsibility and blame. What God does do is hold people accountable for unbelief after the resurrection. Once the resurrection happened, he holds them accountable for unbelief. Let's look at this again. Herod Pontius Pilate, the early Christians knew it was the Roman government. They didn't try to stick the whole rap on the Jews. That was not the thinking of the early church. That's not what you see in the line of faith, and it's not what you see in the New Testament. And it's not what you see prophesied poetically in Psalm 59 and by David, who was quoted in this passage. So to understand this Psalm, it is well worth us going to Acts chapter four, but let's go back to Psalm 59. We see what they're like. We're told that they howl like dogs, howl like dogs. Now, when we read Psalm 20, for pagans, like when Jesus told the woman, Syrophoenician woman, 
who wanted Jesus' help to cure her daughter, Jesus had to deal with her pagan beliefs. I can't give the children's bread to dogs. He wasn't calling her a dog, but he was saying your religion is unfit for human consumption, as we talked about when we studied Psalm 22. But they behave like howling dogs. Pagans are howling dogs. You look at the BJP who persecute Christians in India. They have the behavioral characteristics of howling dogs. You look at the Muslims in Islamic countries, particularly Iran and in and pa rural Pakistan. They behave like howling dogs, vicious people. They behave like howling dogs. Well, let's look. Verse 8, but thou, O Lord, dost laugh at them. Thou dost scoff at all the nations. It's interesting that when the scriptures speak of divine humor, overwhelmingly, in fact, almost exclusively, when we see divine humor, God laughing, he's mocking his enemies. He mocks his enemies. He sees their arrogance. He sees their wickedness. He sees their defiance of him. He sees their false confidence in themselves and their beliefs, and he laughs at them. God mocks these people. This past week, something terrible has happened in Canada, something awful. The conservative government, the, the conservative faction of the government, even the conservatives, most of them supported this anti-conversion therapy law. Pastors who pray with and counsel former homosexuals and lesbians who become born again and want to become sexually reoriented towards the heterosexual normalcy in, in accordance with scripture, they can be charged with a crime. In Canada, they can potentially be arrested and charged with the crime for conversion therapy. The implications that this can have with Christian parents who have children who may have some kind of a or leaning for some reason. Um, you begin teaching that th this homosexuality is wrong and we have to help you and the Lord wants to give you a, 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 a normal libido in terms of attraction to the opposite sex and things of this nature. This is against the law and Canada is only the first. It'll come to other countries. Right now there's legislation pending before the British Parliament, they want to do it in Great Britain. Now, this is something satanic. It's evil. It's evil. That can arrest and prosecute pastors, close down churches, potentially, take children away from parents, ultimately. That's what they want to do. You're unfit to be a parent. The state's going to take your kids, you know, or put them up for adoption in a gay home or something. That's how evil these people are. Well, to us, they're infuriating. They infuriate God, too, but there's something else. Job talks about this. You know, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? But then I perceived their end. God perceives their end. He's given them over to this, according to Romans 1. He's giving them over to their perversion to think it's normal. So they have no way back. 
God's given them over to it. Their conscience has become seared, dysfunctional. And they're heading for perdition. They get aggressive, they get militant, they're celebrating what they're doing. Or like when Barack Obama set up the, the White House, lit the White House up in the colors of the gay rainbow flag, Barack Obama, <laughs> those who give hearty approval to what the scripture says. Well, God marks these people. God sees what's going to become of them. He sees them going to hell. He sees them going, God sees these people going to hell. And their arrogance against him, shaking their fist in his face, he mocks them. He mocks them. That doesn't sound very loving, and he's sending them to hell. No, no they're sending themselves to hell. The Lord offers them salvation. But not only do they want to go to hell, they want to bring other people with them. This is satanic. God mocks it. Remember, in the judgment of Satan, I'd refer you back to our teaching on the judgment of Satan. In eternity, in his eternal judgment, Satan is going to be mocked. Is this the man who shook the earth? He's going to be mocked. The dead are going to wait for him. He's going to be buried among the maggots, and he's going to be eternally mocked. Now, we have a, a teaching on the judgment of Satan. Uh, you might be interested in it. The devil doesn't like it, but <laughs> that's his problem. I sent him a copy for Christmas. Uh, God mocks his enemies. That's a hard thing for some people to swallow, but he doesn't. Now, not all unsaved people, but the ones who behave like howling dogs. The ones who behave like howling dogs. The one who lose control of their human faculties and begin to behave in an animalistic manner. Well, let's continue. Verse 9, because of his strength, I will watch for thee. My God is my stronghold, said David. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Saul hung on the walls of the city on Mount Gilboa at Bethshan. But then it says something else in verse 11. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Notice he never says Israel are not his people. Never. And he refers to Israel in this psalm in verse 13 as Jacob. Jacob. Jacob and Israel have different meanings. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. I've pointed this out before various times. When you see Israel being called Jacob, Jacob is a corporate solidarity. It's where one person represents a larger group of people. And when it says Jacob, it means ethnic Jews. It means literal Jews particularly in their unbelief. It was only after Jacob met the angel of the Lord, he wrestled with Jesus at the brook of Jabbok and Peniel. After that, his name was changed to Israel. We get a new name in the book of life after we struggle with the Lord and he wins the fight. Well, 
in his unbelief, Jacob was Jacob. In his belief, he became Israel. When it says Jacob, it has to do with the literal Jewish ethnic nation, primarily in their state of as yet unbelief. Anyway, it goes on. Scatter them by thy power. Don't wipe them out, but scatter them in verse 11. Don't wipe them out, but scatter them. Well, this happened in 70 AD, and it happened in 120. The Jews were scattered for 1900 years, for 1900 years before being regathered in accordance with the prophecies of Isaiah 11, etc., when God would gather them a second time. Israel would be scattered because of their rejection of the Messiah and because of their hatred of him, their hatred of him. Yet Jesus does not pray for their annihilation, but he does pray that they would be scattered, scattered among the nations, the diaspora. That's what happened. And it's on account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips. They call Jesus, Orthodox Jews call Jesus Yeshu, not Yeshua, which means Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. Yeshu, and it's an acronym, may his name be blotted out of, of the book of life. They actually call him, instead of Yeshua, they say Yeshu, meaning may his name be blotted out. They curse him. In fact, there's certain ultra-Orthodox Jews in their liturgy, in, in, in the standard synagogue liturgy, there's the 18 benedictions. They added a 19th called Habakatamanim, Habakatamanim, where they pray a curse on Jews who are minim, who, who they consider to be apostate. And in the context, it was believers in Jesus. They actually pray in the synagogue liturgy that the names of Jews who believe in Jesus will be blotted out. Now, this is only the ultra-Orthodox, but they do it. Uh, <laughs> this invokes the judgment of God. But then in verse 14, they return at evening. They come back. And once again, they howl like a dog. Remember, the evening means when you approach the night, the night being a figure of the last seven years. It gets darker and darker. The more dark things get, the more howling dogs there are. False religions, cults, Darwinists, secularists, anybody who hates Christ, Orthodox Jews, particularly the Hasidim, they're going to become more and more like a pack of dogs with rabies in their behavior. I'm not saying they're dogs with rabies, but that's how they behave, the scripture says. Like rabid dogs. When it gets dark, their numbers increase. They've always been around. But the reason you see the increased militancy against Christ uh, with homosexuals, they're like howling dogs. In Israel, what the Hasidic Jews do to Jewish believers, they're like howling dogs. What Islam does to Arab believers and to Persian believers and to Asian believers and to African believers, they're like howling dogs. What the BJP does to believers in India and 
Kerala and Madras and these other places, they're like howling dogs. And the darker things get, the more howling dogs there's going to be. But let's continue. David says, but as for me, I shall sing of thy strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of thy loving kindness in the morning. Thou hast been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. We end up with a celebration. The Lord cannot be defeated. Satan thought he defeated the Lord at the crucifixion. He didn't understand and bank on the full implication of the crucifixion that Jesus was paying for our sin. He didn't know that the Father was going to put our sin on the Son and then raise him from the dead to give us eternal life. If Satan knew those things, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He might have known it was going to happen, but he did not understand the full ramifications of what he stirred up. Why did the nations roar against the Lord and his anointed? So let's now look at the Sitzim Leben, the cultural and historical setting of this psalm. Turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 10. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house. Again, this is exactly what we see happens in the psalm, in the preface of the psalm, uh, when Saul's men watched David's house in order to kill him, we are told in the preface to Psalm 59. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Now notice that he wants to kill him in the morning. When he comes out, he wants him dead in the morning at dawn. But in the psalm, it's the opposite. David begins to say that in the morning, he's going to be celebrating. In the morning, he is going to be festive. He will have had deliverance. He will be in a state of joy. He says in the morning, he will be singing. And it specifies that, that these things take place in the morning. Uh, David was set up to be killed. In the evening, they were going to assassinate him in the morning, but rather in the morning in verse 16 of Psalm 59, the celebration begins. The exact opposite of what Saul intended. Well, so too, the exact opposite of what Satan intended. Uh, in the morning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and he's risen. 
Oh my God, what did I do? Except I don't believe in God. I want to be God. That was Satan's position. Well, let's look. He wants to have him knocked off in the morning. But Michelle, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michelle let David down through a window, and he went out and fled to escape. Okay. Now, we know later there was a problem with Michelle when David was dancing in his knickers and she thought it was a public spectacle and she cursed what he did and God cursed her barren and all this. Okay, she didn't like what her husband was doing. She was the daughter of a king and she thought her husband should behave like her father with some kind of royal dignity. Uh, we have a tape on... Um, Second Samuel 5 and 6, we go into this. But now we see her behaving with character. What a situation to be in. Michelle and Jonathan. Loyalty to their father or loyalty to David. Their father was backslidden. He'd gone off but he was still their father. By God's design, blood is thicker than water. Again, David typifies Christ. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. When a woman gets married, her first loyalty remains to the Lord. Her second loyalty, however, is transferred from her family to her husband from her family to her husband. Ideally, a Christian woman is under the spiritual covering and protection of her father till she gets married. The day she gets married, her husband, the head of the wife is Christ is the head of the church. The spiritual welfare of that woman is in the charge of her husband in God's eyes, okay? Now, you don't listen to daddy, you listen to hubby. But a wife is a helpmeet. Hubby had to listen to Michelle. Remember, a praying wife, a godly woman, is any Christian's first and best counselor if she is a solid believer and not a nag, but a woman of prayer. If she's that, God will speak to her into your life and situation before he will speak through anybody else. Now, again, I only say this when you have a wife who's a committed believer and who operates scripturally. But if you have a wife who's a committed believer and she operates scripturally, you need to weigh carefully what she says. Yes, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, the buck proverbially stops with him. This is true. But women are more sensitive than men. They can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit easier than men most of the time, or at least in a different way. And so we see she understands it. 
Not only that, she knows her father. She grew up with him. She knows his character. She knows the way he will behave. And her loyalty goes to David, not to her father. This is going to be a big issue in the last days. Well, it's always been an issue, but in the last days, Jesus said it would be specifically a very expanded issue. Parents will turn against children, children against parents because of Jesus. It is a very difficult thing to have to say your family, your parents are wrong and your loyalties are elsewhere. I have seen this with people saved out of Islam. I have seen this with people saved out of Orthodox Judaism. In places like Ireland, and I'm sure Poland, Latin America would be similar, but in Ireland, I have seen it among people saved out of traditional Irish Roman Catholicism. It is a difficult thing, but Jesus said it would happen, and it's going to happen more and more until he comes. But let's look now. Notice how he escapes. He's let down through a window. He went out and fled and escaped. This is not the only place nor the first place this happens in scripture. How did Rahab and her family escape? Same way. How did Paul escape from Damascus? Same way. You sneak out the window. For some reason, when God rescues his people before impending calamity, the scripture uses more than once circumstances where you escape out the window. <laughs> you escape out the window. Now, when you look at what windows represent in scripture and so forth, they represent a lot of things in different contexts. In temple typology, they represent the light going not in but out. Instead of being, um, instead of being concave out and convex in where the light from the sun would focus in, the light of the lamp of the temple was the opposite. You'd have the convex out and it would be like the light from the lamp, thy word being a lamp to my feet inside the temple would shine out over Jerusalem in the darkness. So God's windows were the opposite of people's windows. Um, it was not about letting the light of the world in, it's about letting the light of God's word out, but also the windows of blessing. We see the windows of blessing uh, in, in um, Malachi and so forth. We could look at different things windows mean in scripture. Um, now, not only does blessing happen there, but judgment happens there. While Rahab was rescued through the window, and she let the spies out through the window, remember? She let the spies out through the window. Jezebel was thrown out the window. <laughs> Jezebel was thrown out the window and killed. When things get intense, you're going to go out the window. 
Either you're going to be lowered out to escape or you're going to be thrown out head first. And Jezebel's skeletal remains, the palms of her hands and her skull were in a puddle of blood with dogs lapping it up. Now that's a picture of the judgment of the harlot, of the wicked woman in Revelation. What happens to Jezebel is a picture, but that's what's going to happen to false religion. They're not going to be rescued through the window. They're going to be thrown out the window into a puddle of blood, and the dogs are going to lap it up. That's their judgment. Uh, again, these things, again, have spiritual symbolisms to them in biblical imagery. But we're talking now about a rescue. Paul was rescued this way. Okay, the two spies were rescued this way. Okay, this prefigures in some way, if you read my book, Harpezo, it prefigures the rapture. It prefigures the rapture. You're not going out the door, you're going out the window. Okay, <laughs> you're getting out a way people wouldn't expect. Okay, getting out a way people wouldn't expect. Saul's men expected David to come out the door when it was light. David snuck out the window when it was dark. The rapture is going to be like that. These are those who've come out of, of the Great Tribulation. We're going to come out of the darkness, but it's not going to happen in a way that people expect. It's going to happen, but not in the way the world would ever expect it's going to be out the window. God's rescue is somehow out the window. I know I'm being vague, but when you see that pattern in Scripture of the rescue being through the window, there is a reason. Now let's continue looking. Verse 13. What you had at this particular point in Saul's house one of his sins, or one of the sins in the family, was not idolatry, but monolatry. Monolatry. What is monolatry? Monolatry is a form of idolatry, or it's a sanitized idolatry, you might say, where people accept there are other gods, but they worship only one. They accept as other gods, but they worship one. This figures strongly in the patriarchal narratives when Jacob's wife had her idols with her and things like this. They believed as other gods, but worship one. Now, this becomes complicated and sometimes convoluted. In Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses, all he did was take something that Islamic scholars had known for years, that Muhammad said that three idols from Africa and Asia were birds of intercession, quote unquote, birds of intercession. And he wrote it in the Quran, they say, which would be amazing itself because he was illiterate. But anyway, they say that Muhammad put it in the Quran and then took it out then took it out uh, because Islam says that Allah is the only God. Now, the only thing Salman Rushdie did was take something that Islamic scholars have always known 
and make it the subject of a book. <laughs> Unbelievable. But this is what happens when you have the howling dog effect. They become like howling dogs. What the howling dogs know? They know how to be howling dogs. They're looking for something, someone to devour. Be that as it may. Another problem or another way that this situation of monolatry has infiltrated Christianity, not Judaism or just Islam, it happens in Christianity, is with something called Hatsevaot Hashemayim, Hatsevaot Hashemayim, the hosts of heaven. Okay. The hosts, we translated hosts, Sevaot means armies, armies, the armies of heaven. And they worship Yahweh, okay? But in Catholicism, they began to, and in Greek Orthodoxy, they began to venerate and pray to angels, pray to angelic beings. Now you see Michael and Gabriel, the angels that God used in scripture. When anybody tried to venerate them or pray to them, the angel said, stop it, stop it, stop it. Yet the Roman Catholic Church could care less what the angels say. We're going to pray to you whether you like it or not. Well, this is a pagan influence. This is idolatry masquerading as Christianity. Okay. There's veneration of angels and of dead saints and things like this. That, that extends, of course, into necromancy. Well, Saul did the same thing. He went into necromancy with the witch of Endor of praying to the dead. But I only touch on that in passing. Let's continue looking at this thing. She had, he had an idol in the house and she took this idol. And David knew about it. It was there. She got it. It was there. This idol was there. Um, everybody has an idol in their house. Everybody has an idol in their house. We have to be careful. It could be the love of money. It could be something with sexual passion. It could be religious pride. It could be political power. Everybody has something that they venerate that becomes the next thing to God to them. Well, when you do that, the danger is always that it will take the place of God. Look at Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, particularly Roman Catholicism, high Anglicanism would be similar. The Immaculate Conception, the Assumption of Mary, Munificentissimus Deus, Mary conceived without sin, you know, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and, uh, you know, the rapture of Mary, the ascension, they call it the assumption. Things that have no biblical basis, they ascribe to Mary under pagan influence, of course. But then it becomes Mary conceived without sin. We pray to you who have recourse to thee. Oh, Mary, now with Hail Mary, full of grace, quotes the Magnificat with Gabriel. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Okay, that's from the Song of Deborah. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Okay. But then, Holy Mary, Mother of God, how can God have a mother? 
The word theatricals is not in there. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. They're looking to Mary to get them into heaven. And they wear scapulas with emblems of Mary and pictures of Mary on it. I'm okay with Mary. You know, <laughs> when there's an idol, an idol will always tend to usurp the place of God. Christians are not idolaters, but Christians, if we're not careful, can be monolaters. We let something become more important to us than the Lord himself. I've known Christian parents who said no, not under this roof. Backslidden and unbelieving children wanted to sleep in the same bed with their girlfriend or boyfriend in their parents' house. I know Christian parents who said no. Unfortunately, I also know Christian parents who said, yes, we don't like it, but we don't want him to go off. Then he'll never repent. That's their reasoning. They will compromise with sin. Uh, you're back to the issue of family loyalty, of family loyalty versus loyalty to, to, to God and Christ. These are the issues that were going on in Psalm 59 and the circumstances that produced that Psalm in 1 Samuel chapter 19. So let's look. She took the household idol. A household idol can be a family business. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. But if it's not subordinated to the headship of Christ, there's something wrong with it. <coughs> and she laid it on the bed and put a, a quilt of goat's hair <laughs> at its head and covered it with cloth. She made believe it was David. And when Saul sent messages to David, she said, he's sick. Then David sent messengers to see, Saul sent messengers to see David. Bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. And when the messengers entered, behold, the house, old idol, was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michelle, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he escaped me? And Michelle said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now remember, Saul killed Abiathar the priest. He would murder anybody who helped David. But he has a problem. Jonathan, his son, and Michelle, his daughter. What a divided family. David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel, the prophet, at Ramah, and told them all that Saul had done. He goes back to the one who anointed him king instead of Saul. So what happens? David is confused with an idol. <laughs> David becomes mistaken 
for an idol. The son of David is mistaken so much for an idol. I think of that plastic Jesus, who our Catholic friends have a little plastic statue of on their dashboard to help them find the parking space. <laughs> and they hang a rosaries on their rear view mirror and things like this in Latin America. You see people doing things like this in Catholic countries. That's not the real, that's an idol pretending to be Jesus. That's what they think. It's a fake Jesus. The Eucharistic Christ is a fake Jesus. Okay. Well, the Jesus of the word faith money preachers, you know, the, the name and claim it guy with the checkbook and the unlimited credit card that he's going to give you on his account to get what you want, just name it. They have a different Jesus. What they have is an idol. Kenneth Copeland worships an idol. He calls him Jesus, but it's an idol. It's mammon. He's worshiping mammon, thinking it's Jesus. No, you can worship the Roman Eucharist, call it the Blessed Sacrament. They think it's, it isn't Jesus, but they think it is. They think it is. They think it's the son of David, but it isn't. They Backsliders will always in some way have a wrong view of Jesus. They will get a wrong view of Jesus in some way. Uh, they'll have an idol who they confuse with Jesus, but it's not him. They'll find out that the real Jesus is left. The word faith money preachers are going to find out that their mammon Jesus has been nothing but an idol. The real Jesus left. Well, let's look. Her father says, why did you deceive me? Notice her loyalty shifted to her husband. Saul sent the messengers to David, okay? But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. What is going on here? And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Neoth in Ramah. And he proceeded there to Neoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Neoth on Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all the day and all the night. 
Therefore, they say, is Saul among the prophets? Oh, boy. How do you explain this? His messengers begin to prophesy. He begins to prophesy. And it doesn't say it was by a demonic spirit. How can this be? Well, the same way Caiaphas prophesied at the trial of Jesus. God recognized the position, the office, the authority of that office and position. It was not about the person. It was about the office, the position. Caiaphas was conspiring to murder Jesus the same way that Saul was conspiring to murder King David, who foreshadows Jesus. The conspirator, the orchestrator of the conspiracy to kill Jesus, that is Caiaphas, he prophesies, foreshadowing Jesus, the orchestrator of the conspiracy to murder David, the ancestor of Jesus, prophesies. David is a type of Christ. But how do you explain this? This guy's a backslider. He's a murderer. He killed the high priest trying to kill David, etc., etc. Turn with me to Romans, please. Chapter 11. Remember, no chapter divisions in the original text. What we have in chapter 12 begins speaking about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 speaks about spiritual gifts. Uh, we have gifts that differ, verse 6. According to the grace given us, each exercise the gift. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, okay? He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. Notice it combines ministry gifts and charismatic gifts. It combines the two. And it's speaking about that. But it's speaking about that immediately after. It speaks of God's eternal election of Israel and the relationship between Israel and the church in chapters 9, 10, and 11. What is the linchpin? How do we connect these two things? Why is Paul talking about Israel and its relationship to the church? And then begins talking about gifts, spiritual gifts and ministries in the church. Look at verse 25 of chapter 11, please. Romans eleven twenty five. I do not want you, my brethren, to be uninformed of the mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that the partial hardening has happened to Israel until the time of the Gentiles has come in. Okay. But then in verse 29 of Romans 11, 
Look at it. This is the bridge, the link between the two things, Israel, gifts, and ministries. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. God's calling of Israel was never revoked. They were called to be lights to the nations. The 144,000, these things, it's going to happen. As we always say, the first Christians were Jews, the last Christians are going to be Jews. God never revokes it. He never revokes his calling. Neither does he revoke his gifting. Caiaphas was the high priest. He prophesied. Saul was the king. He prophesied. Think of a corrupt policeman who's on the take. A corrupt policeman who's on the take. But he still, or she still, carries a badge and the authority to arrest someone. And if they see a crime taking place, they have the legal authority to arrest the person who's a criminal, even though they are nothing but criminals themselves. Their day of reckoning will come, but it's not about the cop, it's about the badge. It wasn't about the man, Caiaphas. It was about the high priesthood. It wasn't about Saul, the man. It was about the fact that he was God's anointed. Look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7. A verse I'm sure you're familiar with. Verse 22, many will say to me, many on that day, a lot. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? <laughs> he doesn't deny they prophesied. And he doesn't deny they did it in his name. But he says, get lost. I never knew you. Obviously, you'll know them by their fruits, not by their gifts. <laughs> you'll know them by their fruits, not by their gifts. And there are backslidden men in pulpits. There are guys that are totally out of God's order with no right to stand in a pulpit who are divorced and remarried, unscripturally divorced and remarried as Christians, not something that happened before they were Christians. There are men who are divorced and remarried in pulpits with no right to be there, but they're there. For his own glory and for the sake of the congregation, can God use them to exhort 
to encourage, to correct? Yes. But that proves nothing about them. Nothing. Oh, he prophesies, he must be right. Oh, he prays in tongues, he must be of God. This is just nonsense. Look at King Saul, a necromancer, a murderer, a complete and utter backslider, a figure of Antichrist. But he prophesied. You see, what happens when your opponents are false brethren? And for his own purposes and for the good of others, up to a point, God uses them. Lord, he's no good. Why are you using him? Look, I know people who've gotten saved through Word Faith Money Preachers. I was saved through the most terrible cult you could imagine. I first met Christ. I was actually born again through the children of God. Then I was in another group that became a terrible abusive cult called the Forever Family, later calling itself the Church of Bible Understanding. Backslidden leaders like Saul, Mo Berg, David Berg, and, and, and Stuart Trail. Terrible men did terrible things. Terrible groups. But God still used them up to a point at certain times. We have to understand that. And so when we read Psalm 59, we need to look at the background of that particular psalm and what it's really saying and why David writes the things he does and why he writes as he does. Notice the howling dogs. Notice the use of Jacob, not Israel. Notice God scoffs, mocks, his enemies. Notice, it's not just the Jews responsible, it's the nations. And of course, we see David as a type of Christ, the son of David. They want to get him in the morning. But in the morning of Yom Rishon of Hag Matzot, the Sunday of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was still dark, the stone was rolled away. Mary Magdalene, the apostles come into the garden in John 20. Sad, despondent, they've taken away his body. I haven't. He's risen. What was supposed to be the darkest hour becomes the happiest. What Satan thought was his biggest victory became his penultimate defeat. His ultimate defeat is, of course, still coming. 
death. Jesus defeated death in his resurrection. In his return, he will abolish it. He will annihilate it completely. He will annihilate it. So it is. When it gets dark, the dogs howl. And the darker it gets, the more the dogs howl. And we feel cornered. We feel oppressed. We feel what's happening. They're regulating our churches, how we raise our children, saying that we can't speak to people, say that of homosexuality. Dear Lord, help us, help us. And you look up to God and he's laughing. You see what we're up against? What are you, what, what, what's so funny? What are you laughing at? And he says, I'm laughing at your enemies. If they only knew. But they will never know until it's too late. I'm telling you. Joy comes in the morning. It's darkest before the dawn. But in the morning comes the celebration. In David and in the son of David, the Lord Jesus.